Well, today our text is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, and we will learn how to enjoy life, biblical directions for enjoying life to the full, which may sound at first like Joel Osteen. and other health and wealth practitioners. And we need to be aware of the false teaching that comes from quarters like that. But we need not be so defensive that we cannot benefit from the truth. And Peter gives us a formula for enjoying life. And may we learn it and apply it and benefit from it to the glory of God. Our text says, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And in our text today, we see, number one, a God-honoring desire. Number two, a God-given directive, and number three, a God-centered disposition. First, a God-honoring desire for he who would love life and see good days. This section, verses 10 through 12, obviously connects with what goes before it. We see the connection with that little English word, for, which introduces these three verses, it is not part of the quotation, but rather is Peter's way of connecting the quotation with what has gone before. It connects, first of all, with what precedes it immediately in verse 9, where Peter told us not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing for he who would love life and see good days. And he goes on to tell us how we may obtain a blessing from God. It actually connects with the larger section that, as you know, began in chapter 2 and verse 11. Some commentators end that section with our text for today in verse 12. Others carry it on a little bit further. But you remember that verse 11 told Christians how to live in the world in such a way that our testimony will impact others for Christ. And he talked about the citizen's relationship to government and the slave's relationship to their masters and wives' relationship to their husbands and husbands likewise to their wives. And then everybody's relationship to one another in the text that we looked at last week in verses 8 and 9. And then he quotes from the Psalms to support that and to tell us how, no matter what our situation, whether we are in a relatively favorable situation or a difficult one, such as slaves who have, have cruel masters. Nevertheless, we can still enjoy life if we will understand God's directives and will put them into practice. Verses 10, 11, and 12, except for that opening word for, are all a quotation from Psalm 34, which we read in your hearing a moment ago. And the portion that Peter quotes here is verses 12 through 16, at least 16a, the first part of verse 16. 
And he quotes it from the Septuagint translation, the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, which is the usual translation of the New Testament writers. And he quotes it almost verbatim. There are a couple of minor changes which I don't think we will take the time to deal with today. This is his supporting text. Having given us his instructions, he now draws upon the Old Testament in order to support it. You say, well, that seems a bit unnecessary as an inspired writer of Scripture, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as one who spoke as he was moved by the Holy Spirit, and whatever he wrote would be the Word of God. Why would he find it advisable to quote Scripture? Well, obviously he did, and he's certainly following his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in that, because Christ did the same. Everything that Christ spoke was Scripture, but how many times he quoted from the Hebrew Scriptures. And I think that is to remind us that everything must be undergirded with the Word of God. And it also reminds us that the Old Testament Scriptures are as much God's Word as the New. And we need to understand the Old Testament. But it is impossible, actually, to do a very detailed study of the New Testament without studying the Old Testament. The New Testament writers directly quote Old Testament passages more than 200 times, and indirectly they allude to the Old Testament, paraphrase the Old Testament, indirectly quote the Old Testament more times than we can count. And so the New Testament is saturated with the Old Testament. And therefore, even making our way through books of the New Testament, we are constantly going back and examining the Old Testament in the course of our study. It turns out that Peter, in his first epistle, quotes directly from Psalm 34 at least nine times. More if you count, for example, the quotation we have before us today, which is three verses. If you count that as three times, because it's three verses, he quotes more than that. But if you count just the The instances where he quotes from Psalm 34, you will find nine separate times throughout his first epistle. Now, what is the concern that Peter has and that he lays before his readers? For he who would love life and see good days. He who would love life and see good days. This is... Hebrew poetry, the whole psalm, of course, Psalm 34, is Hebrew poetry, and the most distinct feature of Hebrew poetry was parallelism. And so you find most Hebrew poetry uh, stating something and then coming back and stating something similar, sometimes something identical in, in similar words, sometimes something similar in different words, but to make parallel statements the one helping to explain the other, and the one helping to expand and elucidate the other. And this is another example of that. He who would love life and see good days. And you can readily recognize that this is basically saying the same thing two different ways. He who would love life. The emphasis here is upon the quality of life, not the length of life, not the quantity, though the Bible has other promises regarding length of life. As example, the promise to children who are obedient and honoring toward their parents. But nevertheless, here, the emphasis is upon quality of life. 
he who would love life and see good days. Days that he recognizes to be beneficial. Days that are filled with satisfaction. That is personal satisfaction in having lived those days. He who would love life and see good days. And this expresses a wish, a desire. He who wishes to love life. He who wishes to have a life that is filled with good days. In other words, he who desires to live zestfully with full awareness of what is going on in his life and purpose. He's living with purpose in his life and he is seeing that purpose being fulfilled. Let me read the quotation from a couple of other translations. 1 Peter 3.10, New American Standard Bible. Let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Or the English Standard Version. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And as it is found in Psalm 34 itself, in the New King James, who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? And so we are concerned here with an attitude toward life. The psalmist is not suggesting that we will have, if we follow his directives here, that we will have a trouble-free life. Everything about the context in First Peter says otherwise. Everything actually about the context in Psalm 34 itself says otherwise. There's not the hint of a promise here that our days will be trouble-free or that they ought to be trouble-free. May I just remind you of a few of the other verses that we read earlier from Psalm 34. And I'll just skip around a bit. I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. This doesn't sound like a trouble-free life, does it? But it sounds like one that God helps us mightily with. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Will not only not be trouble-free, will not be free from sorrow, will not be free from a broken heart. That's not incompatible with loving life and seeing good days. Many, we read in verse 19, this sort of summarizes it all in Psalm 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now we're not talking about a trouble-free life. But the psalmist and Peter, picking up the, the quotation from Psalm 34, is talking about a joyful, eager, positive attitude toward life. Finding joy and meaning in life. Life recognized to be a gift from God. Good days, which are also recognized to be a gift from God. And the psalmist said, if you would embrace this life to the full, if you would enjoy the life 
that God has given you, whatever that life may be, whatever the circumstances may be, whatever the particular trials and difficulties that God has designed into your life may be. But if you would embrace that life and enjoy that life and find that life to be satisfying, then listen very carefully to what the psalmist has to say. In other words, this is talking about a celebration of life. The opposite of weariness of life. Longing for life to be over. This is the opposite, certainly, of suicidal. I read just recently that around 40,000 people a year in America commit suicide. We've lost 4,000 soldiers who've been killed in Iraq over the whole course of the war, and we regret every one of those deaths. But in the course of all of those years, only 4,000 soldiers have been killed in battle. But during those same six or seven years, there have been, what, uh, 40 times 6, 250,000 Americans who have taken their own lives. Life is obviously bitter, distasteful, so hard, so wearying for many people that it's not worth going on another day. How very, very sad. But there are many people who would never commit suicide, who nevertheless are longing for death. They're longing to be taken out of this world. They are just waiting for the time when they shall die. Life has lost all meaning, all joy, all zeal, all purpose. They don't want to live any longer upon the earth. They've lost all desire for that. And they simply want to see this life end But Peter says, quoting the psalmist, he who would love life, he who would see good days, he who would enjoy life to the full. And so this is the opposite of being depressed, the opposite of bitterness and hostility. Some people seem to have hostility toward everybody around them. They just go around with that hostile attitude, that chip on the shoulder attitude and hostility either to a mild or to a strong degree. What a terrible way to live. Angry at the world, angry at everybody, angry at circumstances, angry at God is what it really boils down to. No love of life there, no recognition of good days there. In fact, even focusing so much on eternity that you cannot enjoy today is not the advice that is given to us in the Bible. That's not what God desires. When he tells us to set our affections upon things above, not upon the things of the earth, it is so that we can truly enjoy our life upon the earth. Because it is only when we love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors ourselves, that we can truly embrace life with zest and enjoy the life that God has given us here. And so even as we focus upon the future and long for and look forward to that day when we shall be with the Lord forever... If there's something wrong with that focus, if the result is that we don't want to live any longer upon the earth. That's not God's desire. That's not normal. That's not what God 
created us for. God has given us, according to his design, a certain number of days upon the earth, however many they may be, and only God knows. And he wants us to live every one of them with joy and zest and gratitude and enthusiasm. Every one that he gives us. And so we should not be so negative, so pessimistic, so sour that we do not enjoy the life that God has given. We must not be railing against our family, our neighbors, our circumstances, our boss, our government, our society, even against the evil that's in society, though we must oppose it. But we must not be so, so focused upon railing against all of these things that there is no joy, no delight in the life which God has given, in the very circumstances into which God has placed us. Yes, we live in a wicked, evil world. Yes, we are disappointed in the decline of the United States of America. But yes, God has placed every one of us in America now. Not 1950, not 1776, not any other time in history. God has placed us in this nation. God has placed us in this nation in 2008. And God expects us to embrace joyfully the life that he has given us to live now here upon the earth. A love for life. A positive attitude toward life. Gratefully acknowledging the blessings of each day as it comes to a close and joyfully greeting the prospects of a new day when we arise every morning. That's the picture that we have here. This is how Christians are supposed to live. And though every one of us will get tipped off balance from, from time to time because of unexpected trials, we ought to, by the help and grace of God, quickly recover and get on with embracing, loving, living to the fullest the life which God has given us. And if we cannot do that, this is an indication of some fundamental problem in our life. If you do not have this positive, joyful attitude toward life, then you need to recognize that is a signal that there's something amiss which needs to be corrected and by the help and grace of God can be corrected. And let's ask God to show you what it is so that you might correct it even now, today, in this hour, and go out from here today with a positive, joyful attitude toward life, which is honoring and pleasing to God. What is it that is robbing you, some of you, from the joy of living? In some cases, it may be a lack of understanding. You have not fully understood and embraced what the Bible tells us about who God is, and particularly about his sovereignty. You haven't really been able to embrace the fact that he is in full and sovereign control of every event in your life. You have difficulty believing and accepting that, and that's affecting you. That's affecting your attitude. That's affecting your, your understanding of life. You need to understand God is in control. There's nothing in your life that God didn't place there for wise and gracious purposes. There's nothing in your life that's outside of God's control. There's nothing in your life that would hinder God from fulfilling every promise that he has made to his blood-bought children. Believe. First understand and then believe what the Bible tells us about this. In the case of some, it's a matter of idolatry. You say, well, I don't 
worship idols. That's what they do over in uh, who knows where, Borneo or somewhere. They have uh, carved images and they bow down and worship them. Ah, but we have all kinds of idols. And anything in our heart that takes the place of God, anything that we love more than we love God, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Anything we love more than we love God, anything we value more than we value God, anything that we, we uh, are more focused on than upon God becomes an idol. It's a false god. And false gods need to be destroyed, don't they? And many times what is happening when you're facing great difficulty is that God is dashing to pieces the false gods, the idols of your heart, but you are hanging on for dear life and don't want to let them go. And that brings great sorrow and bitterness and turmoil and distress. Let go. Embrace the Lord your God. Sometimes the problem is weak faith. You do not trust God's wisdom, love, and power. You say you believe in it, but you don't really trust it. Ask God to strengthen your faith. And sometimes the problem is just plain old sin, disobedience, violations of God's word. There are things in your life that you know are contradictory to the instructions, commandments, the word of God. You know that, but you are unwilling to let go, and therefore you are not experiencing joy. You are holding on to the things that you think will give you joy. You don't want to let them go because to you that is where, where joy is found, not realizing those are the very things that are destroying your ability to love life and see good days. And so we come secondly to a God-given directive. He who would love life and see good days, what's the answer? Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. The God-given directive is more simple than we might have imagined at first. It really focuses on three things. Our words, our deeds, our relationships. If you would like to have a zest for life, then number one, guard your words. Number two, guard your deeds, your actions. Number three, guard your relationships. And if you'll line up all of these three areas with the Word of God, you will be amazed at the joy and zest for living that you will find in your life. First of all, we've got to guard our words. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Refrain his tongue from evil. The tongue corrupts both speaker as well as listener. Remember the words of James, who said in chapter 3, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. Our words... Destroy us and destroy those around us. If they are not God-honoring words, if they are sinful words, if they are words that arise from our Adamic nature, then 
rather than from our renewed nature. And so if you would love life and see good days, then refrain from speaking evil and refrain from speaking deceit. Again, a parallelism. In many ways, they are the same, though we can look at them in slightly different ways. Let him turn from. Let him refrain. That that speaks of energetic restraint. The tongue, I don't need to tell you, is not easy to control. In fact, James tells us it's impossible to control perfectly. So you'll make some slip-ups in spite of your best efforts. I'll just warn you about that ahead of time so they won't throw you into the ditch when it happens. Because James tells us that anybody who can control his tongue perfectly is a perfect man. And there's only one who ever did that. That's Jesus Christ. He controlled his tongue perfectly, and he alone was and is the perfect man. So perfection, though that's the desire and the goal, you won't attain it. But if you don't work very hard at reining your tongue in, it is going to lash out regularly, frequently. It's going to to regularly speak things which are dishonoring to God, things which are sinful, things which are sordid, things which are cutting, things which are are mean, things which are unnecessary, things which will cut and hurt and harm and destroy others. And dear friend, don't you realize that while you're wreaking havoc among those around you, you're also destroying your own soul. Okay, you got it off your chest. Now, did that really help you? Now do you love life more? Now are you enjoying good days better? Or now have you got another broken relationship that puts another another obstacle in the path of enjoying good days? You can see why this connects with what went before. In verse 9, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. And Peter has already told us that, and now he supports it with a text from the Old Testament. He says this is exactly what God has already told us. So energetic restraint of the tongue from anything evil that is sinful, that defiles, that corrupts, from any deceit, work at, at never ever saying anything that is deceitful. And that's a big order, but that's, that's the way to honor God with our speech. No lies, no half-truths, no hypocrisy, no flattery, no saying one thing and meaning another. How many times have you been told something by somebody, you took it at face value, somebody that you trusted, and then maybe with the passing of a few days, something else came to light, you had another conversation, it came across some information, you realized that person didn't tell me the truth. What a devastating disappointment. Right. Well, how many times have you done that? You thought you could tell that little half-truth and get by with it and nobody would know. How many times has the person you've told that to found out your lie later on and had that sting of disappointment in their heart because of your lack of truthfulness. 
And what the Bible is telling us here is that our patterns of speech impact the quality of our own life. Yes, we shouldn't do these things because, number one, they dishonor God. Number two, they, they detrimentally impact the lives of others. But number three, they also chip away at our own life. And we're talking about how to have joy and zest and zeal and love for life. And you can't do that if you don't control your tongue. Assignment number one, guard your speech. Assignment number one, speak things which are true and gracious and edifying. Whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, and so forth. Speak good things. Speak true things. Speak honest things. Speak kind things. And you will find that will greatly impact your own quality of life. Number two, guard your deeds. Guard your actions. That, of course, speaks of godly behavior. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Turn from, which means to incline or bend. It's the idea of swerving to avoid, evading evil. When you see it coming, get out of the way. Don't say, I think I'll study that carefully so that I'll know what it's like. You fool, you're falling into the trap. Turn away from evil. Get as far away from sin as you can. But it's more than just removing evil actions and behaviors out of your life. But in their place, you've got to do good, positive good, as God defines it. You not only have to get out of your life all those things that are destructive, as God defines them, but you must place into your life actions that are constructive, again, as God defines them. You have to actively help others. You have to actively give of yourself in various ways to others. You must actively serve others, serve the Lord through serving others. You must be actively involved in those things which are good. As Christians, we ought to be actively involved in some area or areas of ministry so that we are constantly, regularly, and on a schedule performing good, doing good. By the way, being busy with doing good goes a long way with driving evil out. Sometimes one of the remedies for getting rid of evil is being so busy doing good you don't have time to get into trouble. What is that old saying saying that an idle something is the devil's workshop? Is it an idle tongue? Is the devil's workshop or an idle an idle mind? An idle mind. That's what it is. An idle mind is the devil's workshop. Isn't it though? Isn't it though? And so that's what the Bible is saying. Turn away from evil and do good. How much our actions impact others. How much our actions for good or ill impact others. How much our actions when they are not good bring havoc and destruction upon others around us. How wonderful when our actions are good and God-honoring. How much they bless. How much they help. How much they encourage those around us. Back to verse 9 again, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, blessing. We are to be blessing others with our words and our deeds. And that's what Psalm 34 says. 
If you would love life, then turn away from evil and do good. As God defines it. And your pursuit of this is going to greatly impact your own life. This is going to have a great bearing on how much you enjoy life. How much zest you have for living. When you are busy serving the Lord and serving others, then your life is filled with meaning. It's filled with satisfaction. It's filled with joy. You don't have time to commiserate. You don't, you don't find life distasteful. You find it filled with opportunity. And, and uh, you're looking forward to the next opportunity. And it gives life great meaning. So, if you would love life and see good days, number one, refrain your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Number two, turn away from evil and do good. Number three, seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace and pursue it. Peace is fragile. Peace is elusive. Peace is not the normal state in a fallen world. What is turmoil? It's a wonderful blessing when a home, a family, is enjoying peace, good relationships between all the members of the family. Because frankly, brothers and sisters, if you don't know this, the majority of homes in America are filled with turmoil all the time. Can't seem to get on top of it. Can't seem to overcome it. You drive by that $700,000 mansion and you say, boy, if I, if I could live like that, if I, if I had something like that, I would be so happy. You have no idea the turmoil, the sorrow, the, the uh, disruption, the pain, the hate that is found behind those massive and beautiful doors. You have no idea. Peaceful conditions in churches are elusive. It's not necessarily the norm. It ought to be. We all, we all agree that it ought to be. But, you know, that's really not the norm. The reason we hear about so many problems in churches is because there are so many problems in churches. And we don't hear about the half of them. Gossip and slander and, and uh, immaturity and pouty feelings and wrangling and warring and disagreements are the norm. Sadly, the norm. Not shouldn't be, but it is. What a blessing when that's not what's going on. There were many years in the life of this church and we enjoyed such almost unending peace and unity that I think I began to expect that it would always be that way. We would never have anything different, that that was just just uh, God's uh, care and blessing upon us. And eh, the Lord brought a few things along the way to show me differently. And we have had our share of turmoil and problems and disagreements and lack of peace. 
And God in grace has brought us through many of those things. And as far as I know, we are enjoying a wonderful period of peace and unity now. And I would love to see that continue until Jesus comes. And I know in one sense that that is possible and it certainly is desirable. And that is exactly what will happen if we'll all follow the instructions of God's word. If we'll, if we'll listen to this message today and keep these things in mind and practice them always. But it would really be amazing if we experienced unbroken, peaceful relations until the Lord comes. I'm not asking for anything different. I'm not asking for any volunteers. But I'm, I'm telling you that peace is fragile and elusive. Don't take it for granted. But as children of God, we are, we are to not only desire it, but we must aggressively chase after it. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Seek it and pursue it. It's not enough to say, I'd sure, that's, that's what I want, that's what I desire. Well, then go get it. What are you doing about it? Pursue it. Chase after it. Like a hunter chasing after his prey. He stalks it. He seeks it. He goes out after it again. Didn't get it this time. Back into the woods again. Going back again and again and again until he gets his prey. And that's the way we have to go after peace. It doesn't come easily, naturally, or without effort. But Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And our Lord wants his children to not only enjoy peace, but to make peace, to be peacemakers, to be those who pursue it, who create it, who go after it. And how do you do that? Well, not by fleeing difficulty, but by actively resolving it God's way. We don't have peace in our life by being an uncomfortable situation avoider. I made up that term, but I think it describes the situation. There are a lot of people like that. They're, they're people who tend in one of two directions. They're the people who seem to enjoy a good fight. They just like to kind of keep things stirred up all the time. And then there are people who, who dislike that so much that whenever they get involved in anything like that, their solution is just to disappear. But that didn't solve anything either. You've got to learn how to resolve these things God's way. You have to learn how to deal with fractured relationships in your life God's way. And so the question is, are you going to keep avoiding difficult situations but never addressing them? Or are you going to pursue peace biblically? Are you going to take the instructions of the Bible and particularly of Christ himself to mind, to heart, when you have a situation that needs to be mended and patiently, prayerfully, persistently, you say, I tried and it didn't work. Yeah, many a hunter has gone out in the woods and didn't catch it the first time, but he didn't quit. Not if he's a good hunter. I, now, I did that. That's why I'm not a hunter. <laughs> years ago, I'd, I'd never really done any hunting. And years ago, a man in the church said, I, I'll take you deer hunting. And I said, that sounds like fun. I'll go. So he gave me a, uh, some kind of a, a gun. I don't know what it was. <laughs> out in the woods we went. He said, you just, he said, just 
Stand right here, and when the deer comes by, you shoot him. And he disappeared. He went someplace else. And one hour went by, and two hours went by. And I said, this ain't no fun. And uh, I walked out of the woods. I didn't know where he went. I put his, his gun, his, his rifle, I think it was a shotgun with a slug, put it, leaned it against the barn, and I got in my car and went home. I don't know where he went or how long he stayed in the woods, but... Two hours of hunting was enough for me. I've never done it again. That's the way some people address problems. That's the way some people pursue peace. That won't work. You'll never catch it that way. You'll never, you'll, you'll never shoot a deer the way I went hunting. And you'll never, you'll never capture peace if you pursue it with that little bit of enthusiasm, and dedication. You're going to have to go at it patiently, prayerfully. Keep at it. Keep at it. Keep working at it. God's way. Be persistent. Be obedient until you achieve success. And that impacts your own view of life, your own attitude toward life. If you're one of these uncomfortable situation avoiders, then you carry your turmoil with you from one place to another. You get all this agitation build up. You don't address it properly. You think you'll avoid it by going someplace else, but of course it's not been solved. You've still got it in your heart, and then you find another situation there because, because life is life, and, and we live in a fallen world, and all of us are fallen sons of Adam, and peace is fragile, and there will always be another situation. So now you've got another one, and you don't deal with that one, so you quit this and go do that. You quit this job, you go there. You quit this church, you go there. You quit this... This uh, relationship, you go there, you quit this wife, you go find another one. That doesn't work. Would you love life and see good days? Then guard your words, guard your actions, and guard your relationships. And learn to address them. God's way. And so the solution, though in one ways is more simple than imagined, also turns out to be more difficult than it first seems. These are simple things, but oh, aren't they difficult to accomplish? In fact, impossible apart from God's Spirit. Impossible apart from God's Spirit. If education would accomplish these things, then Nobody with a Ph.D. would ever have any problems, but a lot of them do. If money would solve these problems, then the people in the $700,000 homes would never have any difficulties, but nearly all of them I met do have lots of problems. There's really only one solution. It's doing things God's way with the help of God's Spirit. In other words, you've got to be a child of God. If you don't have the Spirit of God within, you're up a creek without a paddle. You can try this, but you're just not going to have the ability to do it. And if you are God's child, then you've got to rely upon the Spirit of God. You've got to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And we conclude quickly with a God-centered disposition, verse 12. Here's the way we've got to live. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And this is a promise, number one, of God's 
beneficial involvement with the righteous. And number two, God's active opposition toward the rebellious. The reason these things are so is because God will make them so. The reason living righteously, as God defines it, will bring joy and peace and blessing is because there's a God in heaven whose eyes are attentively upon all of his children, and he's going to make sure that that's what happens. His eyes are upon us. He's watching every move. That's a bit uncomfortable to the person who's not obeying the Lord, but it's a wonderful, wonderful comfort to those who are endeavoring to please the Lord that everything I do, God knows, God sees. Every prayer I breathe, no matter how weak and feeble, God hears it. God's ears are open unto the righteous. It's a phrase that means He bends down to listen to the faintest prayer from His righteous people, those who are righteous by the righteousness of Christ and those who are living, endeavoring to live obediently according to His Word. But conversely, God's face is against those who do evil. God's face, God's personal presence, His active involvement is against those who do evil. He not only helps and enables and ensures good results for the righteous, but he also hinders and thwarts and defeats any good outcome for the wicked. They can't succeed. God won't let them. You say, well, I'm sure glad I'm not wicked. I'm sure glad I'm not an unbeliever. In the context, I think he's talking about Christians. It's true, obviously, for the unbeliever. But in the context, I think he's talking about Christians. Several reasons to think so. Number one, that's who this whole section is addressed to. Verse 8, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion. And number two, interestingly, Peter doesn't quote the last part of Psalm 34, 16. He finishes it right in the middle of the verse. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He doesn't quote this part to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. That would seem to apply to the unbeliever, but Peter seems to be applying this to Christians. So here's what we take away from this. Christian, if you're living obediently to the Word of God, God is going to actively help you and bless you and make your life a blessing, not only to others, but to you. You'll enjoy it. You'll love it. Your days will be good days. But if you are stubborn and rebellious and refuse to submit yourself to the Word of God, God is going to thwart you at every turn, and your life, frankly, is going to be very unhappy and very miserable, and you're probably going to blame it on everybody else around you but yourself. It's that rotten wife, it's those rotten kids, it's that rotten boss, it's this rotten country we live in, it's this rotten this and rotten that. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, oh Lord.
If you will live to the glory of God, God will make your life a delight. If you will not live to the glory of God, God won't let you enjoy life. So, you want to enjoy life? Here's how. Let's pray. We know, O Father, that you are the author of life. You've given it to us. And by the giving of your Son and his shed blood on Calvary, and by the giving of your Spirit, you have enabled us to embrace and delight in the earthly life that you have given. Forgive us, O Lord for going our own way. Forgive us, O Lord, for insisting upon our own designs and plans and our thoughts that we think are better than your thoughts and our ways that we think are better than your ways. O Lord, we realize again where that gets us. O Lord, we would all desire to love life and see good days. Help us by your Spirit to enjoy that as your blessing upon us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.